Hello, my name is Meg. Welcome to the Unedited Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. The goal of this podcast is to help you both develop and enjoy the habit of daily Bible reading and prayer. About 20 years ago, at a very low spot in my life, I was convicted to begin this simple discipline, and I looked up years down the road to see how God had used this habit to heal deep places in my heart and do incredible things in my life. So over the years, it's really become my greatest passion to help others get to know Jesus through his word and through his presence. Through this podcast, I'm hoping to help you see the word of God with fresh eyes, to learn to slow down with your Bible, and ultimately to fall in love with your Bible and with Jesus. Thank you so much for joining me today. Today, we have a little bit of a different format for the podcast I have my very first guest on the show, and I'm very honored to have my pastor, Joseph Hanthorn, with me today. He's been an incredible influence in my life and in the lives of so many people in our church and beyond. And he is the very first person that I heard say that they fell in love with their Bible. And his love for the Word of God and teaching the Word of God um, has been just very impacting in my life, and I'm so glad to have you here today, Pastor. Glad to be here. Can you just introduce yourself and share a little bit of your story and about the season of your life where you fell in love with your Bible? I'd be happy to do that. Um, I, I was not always in church growing up. Grew up in a very difficult home environment in my late childhood, early teen years. And by the time that I was a teenager, I was using drugs pretty heavily, was involved in criminal activity, got to a very low place in my life where I'd committed an armed robbery at the age of 18 in an effort to get more money to advance my, my drug habit, and I was facing very serious prison time. And In a moment of absolute desperation, I went to a little church in Sherman, Texas, and met with the pastor, expressed to him how I was a ninth grade high school dropout, battling a drug addiction, and very fearful about the future. He told me that God was not my bail bondsman, but if I wanted life change, God was in the life-changing business. That night, I got down on my knees in his office. I repented, wept, went home. I flushed all the drugs and paraphernalia that I had. Two weeks later, God filled me with the Holy Ghost and forever changed my life. I was baptized in Jesus' name, and from that night in January 95 until present, I've never used drugs, never smoked cigarettes, never drank alcohol, God radically delivered me. Shortly after that experience, shortly after that moment of deliverance, uh, it was about two months after, actually, I was arrested for the armed robbery that I had committed prior to coming to the Lord. And I would have to spend five years and two months in maximum security prison in Texas. So between the, the ages of 18 and 24, I was incarcerated. And it was there without the support of a local church uh, in a, in a uh, constant sense. The local church did reach out to me. They did write letters, but I didn't have a local church that I could attend on a weekly basis. I didn't have a pastor that I could interact with on a regular basis. And it was there that I had to learn how to depend very heavily on my Bible. And uh, as you've already alluded to in the uh, beginning of the podcast here, that was where I fell in love with the Bible. And my Bible became my best friend. Um, I found who I was in the scriptures. Uh, I learned what God said about me in the scriptures. I learned to find promises that I could cling to 
in moments of desperation, in moments of maximum fear. Uh, I, I learned to lay hold of the promises of God's Word to get me through those moments. And so uh, I was in that season for about five years. And uh, again, I think during that time, I, I built a very, um, a very strong relationship with the Word. I chose to commit large passages of the Scripture to memory during that time, where I would choose a chapter at different periods, Psalm 91, Romans 8, and others. And I would just commit slowly, would commit these chapters to memory. And that also served me very well. I think um, David said it best in Psalm 1 when he said, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And that really was sort of my story in prison. I, I just gave myself wholly to the Word of God. And, you know, I'm, I'm 22 years removed from uh, that experience of prison, and yet I still reap the benefits from the sowing that I did through the Word of God during that time. You have such an amazing testimony, and I've heard you often refer to it as Bible school. Um, and I heard you talk about praying from a little orange plastic chair with sometimes people around or watching in the near vicinity. Can you just talk about developing a prayer life in difficult circumstances? Obviously, it's very easy for any one of our flesh to jump in and tell us we can't do it because of our schedule or some other conflict, but can you just speak to that? I'd be glad to. You know, it's, it's not reasonable to say that we are Christians or that we walk with Jesus if we are not exercising the primary spiritual disciplines in our life. And those primary spiritual disciplines, those daily disciplines uh, are uh, prayer, reading the word, and then weekly disciplines are things like fasting, attending church. And there are other disciplines like forgiveness and so on. But it is imperative for Christians to um, seek daily bread, but also to die daily at an altar. Um, Christians have to engage in daily disciplines. And this was something that I learned very quickly in prison. I realized how important a prayer life is and that there is a difference between being a person who prays and a person who has a prayer life. Uh, Daniel was a role model. When you look at Daniel, and I think it's Daniel chapter 6, uh, Daniel prayed three times a day. And I remember being inspired by that. And so I made up my mind in prison that I would spend 15, 20, 30 minutes every day after every meal. And so whenever they, they fed us on a regular basis, whenever they brought the food in, I would eat if I wasn't fasting. And then I would go to um, my bunk or I would go to, uh, in one particular environment that I was in, uh, the guards would allow me to use a private room. It had glass around it so you could see in, but you couldn't hear what was going on. So I would go in there and I would pray. Um, but I did that after every meal three times a day. And I was religious. I was consistent about it. Uh, I was militant about it in some respects because I truly wanted to become a man of God and I wanted to walk with God. It was in those moments of prayer. And again, it was not always easy. There were times that um, I, I didn't have a private room, that I would have to kneel on concrete. There were times that I would have to um, try to pray with uh, the loud noise of a day room behind me. 
Um, but I, I realized that uh, we can do uh, just about anything. Uh, if, if the people of God could suffer persecution in the scriptures, uh, we can pray in less than ideal environments. And uh, I learned how to pray in, again, less than an ideal environment. But the, the, the beautiful thing about prayer is if we are consistent. Somebody once said that a habit carries us further than our desires ever will. And if we develop the habit of daily prayer and the habit of daily reading, what happens is sometimes in, in the routine of the habit, God interjects with these very special moments. And uh, I, I can just recall a number of those. Uh, there, there, are, there are a lot of prayer meetings from prison that I don't remember. But it was all of those prayer meetings that I don't remember that brought me to the prayer meetings that I do remember. And it was the habit of just praying in the mundane every day that would bring me to these mountaintop moments where God would supernaturally touch my life, where I was in a low moment, but the muscle memory of my prayer life kept me going back to my knees or kept me going back to that place of prayer. And, uh, and so I would just encourage anyone listening that's trying to develop a, ha- a, a prayer life, be, be militant about your, your, your time and your place of daily prayer uh, because if you are faithful to that time and place, uh, you're going to have mountaintop moments where God speaks to you and you sense God's presence. Thank you so much for sharing that. That is one thing I've talked about on the podcast pretty frequently is the fact that it is just in the consistency and some days you don't have the glory moments, but those less glorious days, like you just said, make way for those moments where the presence of God just meets you so profoundly and he shows you incredibly deep things in his word. Um, And I'm so grateful again to have been the recipient of your ministry and all of those prayers that you prayed in prison, um, all of the long-lasting effects of that season of your life. Um, You've taught our church so much about prayer over the years. What do you think is the most important thing you would tell somebody who's just getting the habit of Bible reading and prayer established in their life? Wow, that's a huge question. What what is the most important thing that I could say about prayer? I, I think you have to do it. Uh, and that may seem, um, uh, you know, simple, but we talk about prayer so much. Uh, people preach about prayer a lot. Christians acknowledge the need of prayer regularly. But when it comes right down to it, you just have to do it. And I think that was one of my takeaways from prison is that I couldn't, I was in an environment where I couldn't wait for ideal circumstances. I couldn't wait for a quieter room to pray in. I couldn't wait for... Um, things to turn around. You just have to make up your mind that I'm going to pray. My spouse may not like it. Maybe I don't have a a real private place to pray away from my spouse. Maybe I'm just nervous or uh, maybe I've got pride that doesn't want me to to pray, doesn't want me to express humility or need. I I had to deal with that in prison. Prison is such um, uh, an ego-filled environment and you don't want to convey weakness. You don't want to show weakness in prison. And I remember having to fight through that as a young man, 19, 20, 21 years old, wanting to pray but not wanting to be perceived as weak. And, and I had to push through that. And I think the one thing I would say about prayer is you just have to do it. You have to make yourself do it. I've been challenging our church of late 
um, that if you don't have a prayer life, that you're going to need to you're going to need to retrain your brain. You're going to need to retrain your body to what it means to have a prayer life. Um, and I'll just say this about a prayer life very quickly: is um, a, a lot of people pray. Not everybody has a prayer life. A prayer life is something that is done consistently, and it is something in which you are getting more and more proficient at. You're growing in your proficiency at it. Um, it's it's a little bit like the difference between snacks and good meals. A lot of people, um, they just pray here and there, or they pray when they're in need, or they pray when they're doing dishes or on their way to work. And that's prayer, and there's nothing wrong with that. The Bible says to pray without ceasing. We should have a lifestyle of prayer. Um, but that should not be a replacement for closet prayer that Jesus talked about in, in his Sermon on the Mount when he said that when you pray, go into your room or go into your closet and close the door behind you and pray to your Father in secret. Um, that's, that's a good meal. That's where you get along with God and really touch God. And, uh, or you could compare it to uh, the difference between napping and getting good night's sleep. A lot of Christians only do snack and nap prayers. They don't really get along with God and spend time in God's presence. And so uh, I've encouraged our church to uh, get a time, a place, a posture, and to use their voice. Those four things, time, place, posture, and voice. Time is the currency of relationship. You cannot have a relationship with God without giving God time. A place uh, is very important. Uh, we see places with great significance all throughout the Bible. Jesus had a certain place that he would go pray at times. And so um, we need a posture. A posture just sends all the signals to our body that we're not here to write, we're not here to look at our phone, we're here to pray. And our voice, our voice is powerful. Jesus didn't say whosoever thinks to the mountain, he said whosoever speaks to the mountain. It's with the mouth that confession is made to salvation. It's the power of our voice communicating and giving person to God. Uh, that is the expression of our faith in that moment. And so we need these four things. So I've told our church, time, place, posture, and voice. But when you get in that place, set your stopwatch. Do not get up from the floor for 20 minutes, for 15 minutes. Um, wherever you're praying, uh, force yourself to give God that time. Even if you run out of things to say, continue to give God that time. Because in time, you will fill that 15 minutes. You will fill that 20 minutes. You'll start reprogramming your thinking because we're, we're so stimulated by video, uh, by what we see um, right now on this podcast as I'm talking. Um, you're helping me. You're nodding your head while I'm talking. Uh, we're used to these visual cues that say that somebody understands what we're saying. Uh, we don't have that in prayer. And so we have to retrain our brain to communicate with a God we cannot see, that we, we don't get any visual cues back from him. And that's why it's important, do not let yourself off the hook. Don't let your flesh drive the bus. Set a stopwatch. Learn how to spend quality, private time with God. And, and if you'll do that, your prayer life will, will blossom out of that. That is, there's so much there that I could reference so just kind of to boil that down, you're saying it's just do it, time, place, posture, and voice. Um, another, you've taught, again, taught our church so many things. You talk about the Lord's Prayer a lot. You've taught us about a secret place. Um, 
one of the key things that I think has really just changed the ideas people have about prayer in our church in particular is something you talk called ugly prayers talked about vulnerability. Can you just talk about the importance of vulnerability, not just having a time, not just do it, but really opening your heart up to God? I think that's the key to successful prayer, and that's what we want the time, the place, the posture, and the voice to facilitate, is that vulnerability, that transparency with God. Um, I used to say, I don't know how true it is, but I used to say that if I had one word to sum up prayer, I would use the word honesty. Uh, that that prayer is about sharing with God what's going on on the inside of us. Uh, we can conceal nothing from God. God knows everything that we think. God knows every word in our mouth before we ever say it. He is omniscient. So there's nothing we could ever hide from God. Not one thought, not one act, not one deed. He knows it all. However, as humans who have a free will and the power of choice, while we can't hide anything from God, we can withhold everything from God. Um, and prayer is, is not a means of sharing with God things he doesn't know, but it's a means of sharing with God in, in a sense of surrendering things to God, bringing God into our thoughts, bringing God into our doubts, bringing God into our brokenness. And that's what prayer is, the invitation to the unseen God to get active in our seen and felt world. And so we have to, we have to be very transparent. Um, I've, I've taught our church through the years that when you don't know what to say, it's okay to say to God, Lord, I'm here to talk to you right now, and I just don't know what to say. Um, when you're angry at God, it is okay to say, God, I'm feeling things right now that I don't, I don't want to feel. I'll tell you about one of the most transparent prayers that I ever prayed when I was in prison. I was actually in the county jail waiting for my sentence, um, and we were hoping for a reduced plea bargain with the with the district attorney. Uh, my pastor and my attorney were meeting with the district attorney to try to persuade him to show some leniency to me because of my recent conversion. And we'd been praying, been fasting for that miracle. Uh, our expectations were high. Um, when they came back from the DA, I called my attorney's office and I said, Scott, give me the good news. I was 19, 18, 19 years old. He said, Joe, I wish I had good news to give you. The district attorney has rescinded any previous plea offers. Um, they're, they're offering you a minimum, or a, the minimum they'll offer you is 20 years in prison with a minimum of 16 served. Um, I couldn't go to jury trial because I would definitely be convicted, and I was guilty, and I wasn't going to lie. So my only hope was a plea bargain. And now they're telling me that my plea bargain, the best they'll give me, is a 20-year sentence with a minimum of 16 served. I was overwhelmed. Um, that was basically the equivalent of my lifetime in prison when I was 18 years old. And the idea of spending the next 16 to 20 years in prison was almost more than I could bear emotionally and psychologically. And I remember doing what I'd done every day. I went to my prayer closet. I went to the little room where the guards would let me pray. And I got in that plastic chair and I rocked back and forth and I started talking to God, and I started saying to God what I knew I was supposed to say to God, which was, God, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I just want to live for you, and if it means I have to spend the next 20 years in prison to be the man that you want me to be, then I'll do it. And then I prayed the most important and most powerful prayer of my life. I said, and I quote, 
Lord, you know I don't mean a word of that. But would you bring me to a place in my walk with you that I could say things like that and truly mean it? And then tears started to run down my cheeks. In that moment, I wasn't, I wasn't trying to put on a show for God. I wasn't performing for God. I was being very transparent about the fact that I knew what was the right thing to say, but I just didn't have it in me to say it. And I needed his help. And in that moment, God helped me because God always responds to our vulnerability. I think of the man, I think it's in Mark chapter nine, who came to Jesus and Jesus said, all things are possible if you believe. And the man cried out with tears and said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. That's, that's what prayer's all about. It's not about pretending for God. It's about communicating with God. It's not about performing for God. It's about sh- turning our thoughts, our fears, our worries, our struggles into prayers and bringing them to his feet. That's, that's very helpful. And I always see vulnerability in prayer, that time where we just flip our hearts inside out, where we just show him everything as the, those are the moments where he knits his heart or our heart is knit to his heart and where that bond is just so deepened and so strengthened. And at the end of the day, every, the entire reason we have the habit of daily Bible reading and prayer is for the establishment of relationship and it is in vulnerability. And again, just opening yourself up before the Lord that that relationship is fostered and strengthened Um, I want to switch from prayer to just talking about reading the Bible a little bit. I think it was last fall, if I remember correctly, you said something in a sermon, and you said the greatest thing for you to know is how to use your Bible. And I know that is a really bold statement, and I agree with it. Um, Can you just talk to us about how to use our Bibles? What does that look like? Well, I think it begins with familiarity. I think it's simple. I mean, I, I, could, I could speak very basically here. I think people need to understand uh, where the books of the Bible are, and then they need to understand um, why they are where they are. There is a flow to the Word of God. Um, there's an Old Testament and a New Testament, and even in the New Testament, there's a structure. There's an order. Uh, the Gospels give us the history of uh why we can be saved because of Jesus's sacrificial and atoning death, his sinless life, his resurrection. But the book of Acts is the book of the church where we see men and women applying personally to their lives what Jesus made possible in the gospels. And then we we have the epistles, which is Romans through Jude, which are instructional letters to the church on how to live a saved life. They're probably the most easily applied books in all of the Bible because we don't have to sort through covenants. We don't have to say, well, does this all apply to me today? The epistles for someone who has recently been born again are, in my opinion, the sincere milk of the word. Um, And that's what we should really be uh, gleaning from. Now, that doesn't mean we can't glean from the Old Testament. We can, uh, but we have to make sure that we, we stay in context. And, um, and so I guess I would say it's important to understand how the Bible works from beginning to end. Old Covenant, New Covenant, Old Testament, New Testament. Um, it's important to understand how the New Testament is laid out. 
uh, once you have context, once you understand why the scriptures are arranged the way they are, then the threads start to show up. You start to see the themes that run from beginning to end. Um, I, I would also say that um, learning how to identify uh, or find characters in the Bible who are in situations or somewhat close situations to what you're presently in. Uh, when I was in prison, I identified greatly with Joseph. Uh, now, Joseph was not in prison for committing an armed robbery, but he was in prison. And I, I gleaned from that. I learned from that. I looked at his responses. I did character studies on Joseph, on others that were very, very beneficial to me, uh, learning how a, a, a man of God should react in adverse situations, in adverse circumstances. And so that's one important way you can use your Bible, doing character studies. But I think the most important thing is, again, learning how the Bible works, how the Old Testament feeds the New Testament, is a foundation for the New Testament, how the New Testament completes the Old Testament, and then how the New Testament is laid out um, in particular. Thank you for that. Um, with that said, I know you said the New Testament completes the Old Testament, and the Old Testament is the foundation for the New Testament. That brings to mind something else that I've heard you teach, kind of how, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, I, th I think understanding that um, the, the New Testament was always the plan of God, always in the mind of God. Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And so the Old Testament is a movement toward the New Testament. In fact, all the sins of the Old Testament were pushed to the feet of Jesus, where he died for all sins, past, present, and future. The people in the Old Testament, they looked to the cross in faith. We today look back at the cross in faith, but the cross is that centerpiece. The Bible says that at the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, made under the law to redeem them who were, who were under the law. And I love that phrase, the fullness of time, that the Old Testament was the setting of the stage. Uh, when you look at a Broadway musical, when you look at any kind of a high school play, um, people don't just show up and wing it. There's a, there's a stage built, there's a script written, there are rehearsals performed. We see the same to be true in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is where God is building the stage onto which Jesus would come. It is, it is the stage of Israel, the stage of Judaism. Uh, it is also the writing of the script. Uh, Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the, the prophets or the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. And so every prophecy of the Old Testament, uh, in the Old Testament of the Messiah was a script being written that Jesus would live out. Uh, and then the dress rehearsals, these would have been all of the sacrifices and the Passovers and all of those meals, uh, special meals and, and uh, atoning sacrifices throughout the Old Testament. These were dress rehearsals for the death of Jesus Christ who fulfilled all of those things. And then the, so you're saying the New Testament is that play being played out on the stage of the Old Testament. Absolutely. Think of Jesus' birth as opening night. Uh, that, is, that is where redemption finally comes to man. Uh, at last, Emmanuel, God with us, uh, the plan of God, uh, the word of God made flesh. But that was the, the sum total, the culmination of everything that God was doing in the Old Testament 
to get the world ready, to get the stage built, to get the script written, to get the rehearsals done. And then we see John the Baptist making this bold declaration at the opening of the New Testament when he says, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. This was the Lamb that had been foreshadowed in Abel's sacrifice and the Lamb that had been foreshadowed uh, with Abraham's sacrifice or, or attempted sacrifice of Isaac on Mount Moriah. This was the Lamb that was foreshadowed uh, with the Passover lamb that spared the Israelites from the death angel in Egypt. And finally, finally, we're at the moment where all of these foreshadows and all of these rehearsals are fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. And the New Testament is the fulfillment of that. That, again, is just so helpful. It's really helped me understand the overall framework of the Word of God, kind of the skeletal system for the Word of God. And I will say, uh, Pastor Hanthorne is passionate about Bible studies. If you've never been through a Bible study, look up a local apostolic church wherever you are and have them walk you through exploring God's Word. It will uncover those grand themes of the Bible. Um, and contact me if you need a Bible study. We can get you set up with one. Um, and again, I really think it would just help you rightly divide the Word of Truth and Megan, could I just interject? I think sometimes people read the scriptures um, and it's more just inspirational reading instead of uh, reading to understand the word. And there's nothing wrong with reading the scriptures inspirationally. In fact, we should do that. Um, but we also need to read with a sense of understanding the word of God, the context, how it flows, because that's where we start getting into the layers and the beauty and the revelation of God's word. The word of God is just truly so incredibly deep. I just heard Nona Freeman recently say, you can never dig to the bottom of God's word. And I've so found that to be true. And it's been such a incredible blessing in my own life personally. I wanna just transition a little bit. I know that right now globally, we are facing unprecedented times. There's a level of uncertainty that I'm not sure the world has ever known, and we can look at all sorts of statistics and see that there's people that are in very low places and battling very severe um, mental health crisis and just other things that we're facing globally and within the United States. Can you just talk to somebody that's in a low season and talk to them again, just bringing this idea of Bible reading and prayer home? Obviously, you've been through low seasons. Um, and kind of using this as a way out of a low season. Yeah. You know, I think the risk that, people, that Christians face in low seasons is that their faith is under attack. Um, the enemy uses low seasons, whether it's grief, whether it's uh, pain from chronic sickness, uh, whatever it may be, betrayal. He uses circumstances of life to attack our faith. When you look at Job, for example, the target was not Job's family. The target was not Job's finances. The target was Job's faith. Everything that the enemy did to Job was targeted to destroy his faith. And, and it is critical for us in low moments to make sure that our faith stays strong and it stays fed. Well, the Bible teaches us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We cannot expect to have healthy faith if we are not engaging the Word of God on a regular basis. And so the Word is so critical in low moments because it keeps our faith fed. 
when everything else around us would tear our faith down. And so that's why we have to marry ourselves to the word. Um, you know, I think it was Jeremiah said that I've, I've esteemed your word better than my necessary food. And that's, that needs to be the Christian's uh, uh, mantra in low points. Because when, when, our emo, when our emotions run high, our judgment runs low. And that's, we need more truth in our life in low moments than we do anywhere else because we're susceptible to emotional deception. We're susceptible to our hearts drifting away. We're, a set, we're susceptible to getting bitter or getting hard or getting isolated and siloed. And that's why we have to keep coming back to the word of God and allowing that truth to anchor us and to keep us connected to God. That's so good. Um, is there anything you would just like to share, any random topic you get to pick? Uh, if you could just tell, tell anybody anything. Wow. Um, that's, uh, that's quite a blank check. You know, let me just say this. I think one of the greatest areas, kind of segueing off what I just said, one of the greatest areas for struggle and one of the greatest... Uh, means of attack on a Christian's faith is often wounds and betrayal that we suffer at the hands of other people, sometimes even close people or friends or good people. And I think for Christians, another one of the key disciplines that we have to learn to walk in is the discipline of forgiveness. Uh, if we want to get very blunt about it, there's only one sin that um, Jesus said uh, well, I mean, we could talk about the, uh, the, the, the sin of blasphemy, but in a very practical sense, there's really only one sin that Jesus said, I will not forgive you if you do this. And that is unforgiveness. That if we, we arbor unforgiveness in our heart against someone, we're literally cutting off the supply of God's grace and mercy into our own life. And so we have to be very intentional about practicing forgiveness. Now, here's a couple of things to remember that forgiveness is an act of faith. It is an act of our will. We don't forgive out of emotions. We don't forgive uh, out of uh, an erasure of our mind. You know, we don't forget memories. We forgive as an act of our will in the presence of pain and in the presence of memories, but we choose to forgive. Joseph is a great example of this. Joseph forgave his brothers, but the Bible says on, I think it's about seven times, that Joseph wept. On one occasion, he wept so loud that the people in the other house could hear him weeping. He was a man of great passion, a man who had experienced great pain. But in the midst of that pain, he exercised his will to make a decision to forgive, to release his brothers. Um, he also didn't forget what they did to him. When they came to him, he said, I'm Joseph, whom you sold into slavery. He, he did not forget what they had done. And uh, Forgiving somebody doesn't mean we just pretend like the wound didn't happen. Uh, that's, that's not healthy. We acknowledge the wound. We, we don't deny what was done to us, but we choose to trust God with this wound. And so forgiveness is not the absence of pain, and it's not forgetting the memory, but it's choosing in the presence of those things to, to bring that memory and bring that pain into the presence of God. Uh, I've taught our church for years that we've got to be very careful where we open our wounds. We have to make sure that our wounds are opened in sterile environments, in safe environments. Because if you go and you just open your wound, 
on the you know on the playground or or on uh, you know in a in a in a bathroom somewhere or in a sewer somewhere, you're going to get infected. The same is true if we just open our wounds on social media and we just let anybody advise our wounds or speak into our wounds, we're going to get infected, infected with carnal thinking, infected with bitterness. We're going to have people feed our own base emotions or responses. And so we have to make sure we keep our wounds open in safe places. And there's no safer place to open your wounds than the presence of God and in your private closet of prayer. One last thing about forgiveness is forgiveness is also not uh, an immediate reconciliation. Forgiveness may lead to reconciliation, but it doesn't have to. I can forgive somebody that I may never reconcile with. Reconciliation takes two. Forgiveness only takes me. It takes me coming to God with the pain that I've suffered. And reconciliation is something that should be done if it's a deep wound, something that has emotionally or traumatically affected you. Um, you should probably pursue reconciliation with spiritual counsel from a pastor or from a professional counselor because you don't want to be re-victimized if someone has severely traumatized you in the past. Um, you know, perhaps the person that hurt you is dead and reconciliation is not possible. You can still live in the freedom of forgiveness even though you're not able to reconcile. Um, so I think it's important to make that distinction because I've seen people who want to forgive, but um, there's no way for them to reconcile, and so they feel guilty. Uh, and you can, you can walk in the freedom of forgiveness uh, without ever reconciling because sometimes reconciliation is either not possible or not healthy. Thank you for sharing that. And that is so key because, again, the habit of Bible reading and prayer is for the formation of relationship with God. And forgiveness is one of those things that can stop it dead in its tracks. You're not even able to build a relationship with God if you are harboring unforgiveness and allowing it to turn to bitterness. We're never more like Jesus than when we are forgiving people. We're never more like him than we, when we are choosing to extend mercy to people that do not deserve it. That's so good. I know just thinking about the things that you've shared, the low seasons, maybe that you've walked through, you talked about prison, um, you've talked about forgiveness, and I'm guessing that if you look back at those seasons of your life now, you wouldn't trade them. And I imagine there's other people listening that maybe they're in those low places. They're not maybe in a physical prison, but they're in some other sort of, of prison, maybe battling some sort of addiction, or there could be so many things to fill in that blank. And just, I'm so glad that there's hope. And I guess, I, am I right that you wouldn't trade those seasons? Are You're those right. I've, I've, I've often said that in prison, I would have given anything to get out, but now I wouldn't take anything for the experience. Here's the, here's the stark reality, though. Um, God will not waste our pain and our low seasons, but we can. God will not waste them if we give them to him. But if we squander those low seasons by not using them as an impetus to draw near to God, we can get on the other side of that low valley and be no better off than we were when we went in. I was challenged when I first went to prison. My pastor came to visit me, and I'll never forget him looking through the glass, talking to me on the little phone. And he said, Joe, don't waste this. 
Don't waste this. And, and I remember that kind of upset me in the moment because I, I, I wasn't wanting somebody to tell me how God was going to use this. I was wanting somebody to tell me how God was going to get me out of this. And yet he was telling me, don't waste this because God is going to use this to shape you into the person that he wants you to be. And I would say that to everybody who's listening to me right now. Um, you know, it doesn't matter what the catalyst for your pain is. Uh, it could be a divorce. It could be a chronic sickness. It could be the loss of a loved one. Uh, the truth is that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord, to those who are called according to his purpose. But it is up to us to surrender these things to God and to invite God into these low places with us to shape us as we walk through the fire and as we walk through the valley. God wastes no pain. And I just want to say that, to reiterate that to anybody that might be listening that is in their own low place or their own quote unquote prison that God's going to bring you through and God is going to use it if you will allow him to use it. Um, again, nothing wasted. And so I just want to say, Pastor, thank you so much for being on the show today. Um, again, your love for the word of God has just been so impacting and I'm so glad to have you here. Thank you for having me. And thank you for joining me for this journey today. I look forward to meeting up with you again next Friday. If you have questions or to download a typed or a handwritten transcript of today's entry, you can visit MegUnedited.com. For now, go grab your journal and your Bible. I look forward to the power of this habit in your life. This is Unedited. This is for you. Happy Friday. <laughs>